Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. As usual, I want to remind you that we have, luckily, a volunteer, Charlie, who is open to and eager to get from you any suggestions, clips, links that you think go to a topic that we ought to devote creating a segment for that topic on this program. Please inform Charlie at the following email, charlie.info438 at gmail.com, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. In today's show, we're going to be talking about strikes like the Writers Guild of America and the United Auto Workers and what's at stake in those mammoth events, one now completed, one underway as we talk. We're going to talk about the Federal Reserve and what it succeeds and fails at. And we're going to be talking about the government of the United States subsidizing private enterprise in ways that might surprise you. In the second half of the show, we will interview Pete Dolak, who's just released his second book, What Do Bosses Do?, rewritten as a title, What Do We Need Bosses For? And he gives a very good answer and explores it with us. So let's jump right in. The Writers Guild of America recently concluded a strike that lasted 148 days since May of this year. They ended with a tentative agreement for a new three-year contract with the management of the writers that were on strike. And there's a union election, if you like, vote to ratify this tentative contract going on as this program is being recorded. Major gains were won by these workers, and I mean major. Perhaps the most important, real controls on how the people who hire writers can use artificial intelligence to replace or destroy the jobs that these writers spend a lifetime becoming proficient at. They also got improvements in their health program. They got wage increases up to 12%. Over the life of the contract, they got gains in fees and bonuses. They really did quite well, as unions are. And I want to celebrate that, recognize it, appreciate it. But I also want to ask some questions, not out of disrespect for what the union won, but because what the union won and what working people need still have a scary gap between them. And let me give you a couple of examples. The workers lost 148 days of income. Now they're going to get a wage increase, and it's definitely worth it. And the dignity of having won that is incalculable. And the benefits in controlling artificial intelligence make it all worthwhile. But there is something fundamentally unjust in all of this. The people who employ writers, they weren't on strike. They didn't suffer any loss in pay. They didn't have much to do since they supervised writers who weren't there and therefore had nothing to supervise. 
but they didn't lose any money. The workers did. That's not fair. That's not appropriate. And if writers were organized in a different way, if the writing they produced was cooperative, if they all got together, produced the writing, and then sold it to whoever buys it, they'd do much better. A worker co-op would be a better way for them. And there's something lost in using the powerful weapon of the strike, which they did, and they did it well, still leaves them short of what they deserve as skilled, important parts of the culture and civilization of this country. They shouldn't have to strike. They shouldn't have to lose 148 days of pay, etc. I want to turn next to another example of much the same idea. As we make this program, the United Auto Workers are on strike against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, those three automobile companies that dominate the auto industry in this country. And one of the great issues is the demand of the union for increases of between 30 and 35, 36% over the life of a contract. Now, they've already lost a lot of money over the last three or four years because of the inflation, like all workers. They were working under a contract where there were no gains to match the inflation. So they're playing catch up. And they've been on strike, some of them now, for weeks. I want to compare their situation as workers, trying to catch up to the damage already done to them by an inflation without their ability to raise wages to match the inflation. Because now they have to try to catch up, plus they have to try to guess what the next few years are going to be in the way of an inflation and get enough money in the contract, enough of a wage increase to survive the next inflation, and we're in one now. Okay, that's why they're pushing. But the pushing of the workers for a good contract, one up there in the 30 to 40%, the way the Teamsters got at the United Parcel Service strike a few weeks ago, across the table from the workers trying to get these minimally adequate incomes, sit the leaders. And I want to talk about the leaders of the automobile company and tell you how out of line they really are. I'm going to start with Mary Barra. She's the CEO of the General Motors Corporation. Last year, the last year for which we have numbers, she, her salary was, get ready, $29 million. That works out, because I did the arithmetic for us, to 362 times the wages of the median worker. That's the worker, half of whose colleagues, co-workers make more, and half of whose colleagues, co-workers make less, the median. So she gets 365 times what the median worker gets. And I worked out the arithmetic, $29 million a year, works out to, now get ready, her salary, $550,000 per week. And throughout the strike, she gets paid. She sits on one side of the table. The union sits on the other. Union workers, when they go on strike, don't get paid. 
Think of the different pressure on the workers' side who are losing income they depend on, in many cases, week to week, versus the pressure on the executives whose income doesn't go down by one penny, even though it's 365 times. Don't think she's an exception. The uh, CEO of Stellantis, Carlos Tavares, made $24.8 million, and the CEO at Ford made $21 million. So in other words, the CEOs of the three big auto companies make between $21 and $29 million a year, hundreds of thousands of dollars per week, and they lose nothing in a strike. In case you think, well, that's what CEOs do, you'd be wrong. The CEO of Toyota, the largest Japanese company, was $6.7 million. Just let, let's be clear. Toyota and GM about the same. The head of GM, $29 million. The head of Toyota, $6.7 million. You don't have to pay your top executives the wild money taken by the head of American oil companies. And let me make sure you understand. The Honda guy, the CEO, Mr. Mibe, Toshihiro Mibe, was paid $2.3 million, one-tenth of what Mary Barra got last year. And so it goes on. And in case you think, well, maybe that's a difference only between the United States and Japan, it isn't. Let me give you Germany. The CEO at BMW, $5.6 million. Ola Kalanios, the CEO at Mercedes-Benz, earned $7.5 million. No one is near what the corporate leaders of GM, Ford, and Stellantis do. They are ripping you off. When you buy one of their cars, a good chunk of what you pay goes to give them way higher salaries. And nobody in their right mind would argue that Japanese and German automobiles are less efficiently made, don't last as long, are deficient in any way in relationship to GM, Ford, and Stellantis. If anything, it's the other way around. Wow. Pay is not for what you do. Pay is as much as you can grab. And American corporations living in a country like this are not only willing and able to grab, but they've made sure that no one in the government dares step in with taxes or anything else to stop this ripoff from happening. My next update has to do with the Federal Reserve System. And here I want to simply say to you, let me read to you what the charge is of that government agency to conduct national monetary policy by influencing monetary and credit conditions in the U.S. economy, and here comes a key word, to ensure maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. That's the job of the Federal Reserve. Well, you know what we have right now? Millions of people unemployed, prices that are rising and have been way above anything that could be called stable prices, and interest rates that are making it impossible to buy homes and cars. In other words, the Federal Reserve has failed to do what it was established to do. And here's what that means. 
We have an economic system called private capitalism, which is unable to guarantee jobs to the people who need them. It's unable to maintain stable prices so we can all manage our lives and interest rates that allow us to borrow for things that we need where we aren't paid enough to buy them outright. And so we have the Federal Reserve supposed to come in and help fix what the private capitalist system can't do, and it turns out the government can't do it either. We have an out-of-control economic system. The Federal Reserve fails. It can't even come in and fix what it fails to do, and it shouldn't have to do that in the first place. Our last update for today, in a way, illustrates the points of the earlier segments. Recently, it was announced that the United States Energy Department is preparing a billion-dollar loan. You heard that right, a loan of a billion dollars to the Lithium Americas Corporation to build a lithium mine in Thacker Pass in the state of Nevada. Why is the government lending them a billion dollars? Answer, because the private capitalist system is no longer adequate for what the people who run this country in that corporation and in the government think we need. They're worried. They won't be building lithium fast enough. And that's what powers electric vehicles, the batteries in them. They don't think it'll be American enough. Other people might come in and run that. They want this to be controlled by Americans. And there won't be enough private investors to provide the money. So the government is going to come in to do it. Let's be real clear here. This is government coming in because the capitalists need it and want it and don't want to pay for it themselves. Got nothing to do with socialism. We've come to the end of the first half of today's program. Please stay with us. Pete Dolak will join us to explain why he just wrote a book called Who Needs Bosses? We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I am very glad to bring back to our microphones and our cameras Pete Dolak. And Pete is a friend and a prolific writer and speaker. Uh, he's the author of a new book, which is why we've brought him here now. Uh, what do we need bosses for? Question mark. Toward economic democracy? Question mark. And as you all know from following this program, this is right up our alley, the kind of questions we ask and for which we offer an answer. It follows an earlier book we also discussed here called It's Not Over, Learning from the Socialist Experiment, where he examines the 20th century's experiments in socialism to see what we need to learn, what we need to do better what we need to avoid. Very, very urgent, relevant issues for the world today. He has written for Counterpunch, Znet, The Ecologist, Popular Resistance, and he has a blog called Systematic Disorder, which I would urge you to go look at and learn from as I have. He's an activist who has worked with such groups as the No Spray Coalition, the Brooklyn Greens, you can guess where he lives, 
New Yorkers Against Fascism, Amnesty International, and most recently, Trade Justice New York Metro. As to this book, which we're about to go into, I wanted to mention, to save him the time, that the core of this book consists of six chapters describing past and present efforts to establish new systems of economic democracy on a national or society-wide basis. The six examples are workers' self-management in Yugoslavia, workers' control in Czechoslovakia, the social uh, social property area of Chile at the time of Allende, the Democratic Confederation of Rojava, if I've pronounced it correctly, the cooperatives of Cuba, and the communes of Venezuela, a rich compendium of these efforts, their experiences, what they learned, etc. Okay, so let me begin with a very brief introduction. Why ask the question of what do we need bosses for? That's not really a new question. It's been asked in history before, usually before the change that answered the question with, we don't need them. Let me give you an example. Once upon a time, most people believed that in order for any society, any civilization to work, there had to be a king. And if not a king, well, then a queen. And very soon, when they passed, another king and queen, a descendant from them. We now think of these ideas as weird, strange, quaint, but in any case, long gone, except in a ceremonial sense. Once upon a time, in many parts of the world, it was thought natural, like trees growing and rain falling, to have some people who were masters and other people who were slaves. What do we need masters for? The slaves eventually asked. And shortly after that, the master-slave system disappeared. Okay, now in the same vein, here's Pete Dolak writing a book about the question, what do we need bosses for? And juxtaposing the question, what about economic democracy? So tell us, first of all, Pete, what does your title mean? Why did you choose it? What's at stake for you in the labor, which I know went into writing such a book? Well, I wanted to, um, as pungently and quickly as possible, get the point off that we don't have to organize production and economy and society the way that we organize it now. Why does everything have to be so top-down, so authoritarian? As you just pointed out, all these possible, all these previous ways of organizing society and previous ways of organizing economy have passed into history. Capitalism also will pass into history. So I think it's a job of folks like us and many of the people who are listening or watching this program to uh, give things a little push and move things along. If you came along now today and says, yes, we should go back to the days of monarchy. We should have an absolutist king whose very word is law. And and if you said, this is how we should organize society, people would look at you like you're crazy. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. But not too far in the past, that's what everybody thought. And if the king's line died out, they'd elect somebody else the king, and then you go forth. So you would have cases where 
the king would die suddenly and there'd be a five-year-old would be now the new king. And it didn't occur to people to say, well, why would we have a system where a five-year-old is going to be in charge? It doesn't make any sense. Now, we can look at it with an historical perspective and say, this doesn't make any sense. I guess when you're inside something, it's harder to see that. And I think if we advance to economic democracy, socialism, I tend to like to use those two terms interchangeably, and we go to a, a future society where things are democratic, everyone gets a say, everyone gets a fair amount of the proceeds in doing it, they'll look back in our times at the 19th and 20th century and say, how did people put up with that? It doesn't make any sense. One guy at the top makes 360 times more than everybody else. Now, probably your average CEO probably works pretty hard. Let's let's grant that. But do they work 360 times harder than the average employee? I really doubt it because your average employee is also working pretty hard. All of us who spend our working lives in capitalist enterprises know that we work pretty hard. Our coworkers work pretty hard. Well, let me let me push you now, because when when you talk like this, especially here in the United States, but in many other parts of the world, you get a reaction, which is a variation of the following. It's a very nice idea. It's even an attractive idea, but it can't really work. It's just it's unthinkable. How could you have enterprises without a boss? So I'd like to ask you just to pick any one of the six examples from your book that you're comfortable with to give us an idea of how, in fact, it worked and, and what was the experience of the people who went through trying to set it up, actually setting it up, and working in that way for quite a while. Well, I'll use the example of Chile. We're just past the 50th anniversary of the Pinochet coup. So I think that's uh, an example that's probably on a lot of people's minds still right now. What they did there, Allende had kind of a phased-in approach because he knew he, he did not have a majority in the Chilean parliament. He wanted to go somewhat slow. So what he did is he started nationalizing certain key things like banking, the uh, copper mines, because Chile was completely dependent on copper exports, and a few other key things. But people started seeing like, well, wait a minute, what are we waiting for here? This this is our chance. Now, one of the examples I talk about is the largest uh, textile, well, at the time was the largest textile factory in Chile. And that factory was run by two generations of a family that ruled with an absolute iron fist. You know, the boss said, this is what goes. Uh, he controlled everything. All the employees were monitored. There was even company housing. You were monitored there. If you said anything that the boss didn't disagree with, then the boss was a very right-wing kind of personality, as these kind of personalities generally are, you are gone. Not only were you gone, but he would blacklist you, so you would have a really difficult time finding a job at another place there. So there were people in the immediate years before Allende who were very slowly in a painfully slow process talking about, how can we change things there? And they very slowly reached out to other people and they were still underground. Now Allende is elected. Now they can become above ground, but still the boss is very powerful there and they had to tread very carefully and they used it, the boss used a two-pronged thing. First, he would try to bribe you and say, well, hey, well, you will give you something if you drop all this. And if you didn't, then the company goons were going to come after you or they fire you. But as the Allende government progressed over months, People came on ground, and in a matter of months, they went from this very cautious, very quiet underground kind of thing, where their goal was basically just let's ameliorate our conditions to 
somewhat of a degree that we can. And within a few months, they decided, what do we need bosses for? We're going to take this over. So what they did is they called a mass meeting and the people were organizing this. They did it on a Sunday when nobody would be in there except maybe a couple of security guards made their meeting, made the decision, decide, okay, that's it. We're kicking everybody out. We're going to take over production and we're going to take over the self or other way, lock the gates to keep the police from coming in in case that happened. And the next day they just restarted production and started running everything themselves. And this kind of thing was replicated around Chile. So people who were completely shut out of having any kind of decision-making, who were cogs in a wheel to shut up and do your job, and now they're all making their decisions. And you see these kinds of things, people making these very rapid advances in their in taking over their uh, enterprises ac- across Chile because now they had the chance to fulfill this uh, potential that lies in all of us. We do the job. We do the work. We're the experts. So why shouldn't we have a say? Why can't we run it? And that's what they very quickly came to realize. And the first year and a half under Allende, great success, unemployment, more than half, wages were going up, it was a success, and then of course the Nixon administration and the Chilean bourgeoisie began their counteroffensive, and uh, of course we know how that ultimately would run out in 1973. But while it lasted, before the, uh, the bosses regrouped themselves, great successes across the board. Yeah, it's very important to stress that it was the success of this model the ability to reproduce it over time, the ability to get all kinds of other workers to realize they could do it was a major, if not the major, but it probably was the major reason you brought in the army to overthrow what was a very successful new government and new social movement. Okay, next I want to push you on another thing a a person would say. Why haven't more working people both here in the United States, but globally. Why hasn't one or another of the many examples, like the six in your book, why haven't more workers tried to do this around the world? How do you account for the fact that it's taking a long time? And you mentioned earlier, it took a long time for people to overcome the idea of a king. What's the explanation for this? I think those four infamous words of Margaret Thatcher really sum it up. There is no alternative. And that gets inculcated into the people. I mean, let's face it, if capitalism were a natural thing, there wouldn't be such a massive, endless, multi-channel propaganda effort to convince us that there's no alternative, Mm -hmm. uh, that this is the only way it could possibly be. And gee, maybe this isn't perfect. Okay, you know, it, not everything is rosy and wonderful, but anything else would be worse. So, you know, better to stick with the devil you know than the devil that, that you don't know. And to me, the key to everything is it, the linchpin is there is no alternative. As long as people believe there is no alternative, then there isn't going to be an alternative. But as soon as we can break those down and people look around and say, hey, look at these cooperatives over here. They're doing pretty well. They're making more money than I do. They have better working conditions. They're giving back to the community. Well, we can do that too. And once people see more examples of something that is different, that is an alternative, that does work better, that is more humane, then there is no alternative all breaks down. And I, I think once that happens, the momentum would start 
picking up very quickly. And this is why alternative examples always are tried to crush by, you know, the U.S. government, by capitalist forces working, working, working in concert with one, one another. Because the danger in Chile wasn't that it wasn't going to work. The danger was that it was going to work. Pete, uh, very well said, very eloquent. And it's another way for me to end, I wish we had more time, by urging people to look at the examples that are collected in your book and the framework with which you present them. It's an urgent matter, and this program itself is an effort to get the word out so that people are less hesitant about moving in this direction. To all of you again, I want to thank Pete for being with us, but I want to remind you that I look forward to speaking with you again next week.